In this episode, I will dissect the Black Lives Matter movement and draw links to the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s in the United States. My end goal of the episode is to determine whether the Black Lives Matter movement is a regen of the civil rights movement. What, what even is Black Lives Matter? I mean, just can you quickly tell me because I don't really have a clue um, because I've been asleep or under a rock in hibernation for the past few years. I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with what the Black Lives Matter movement is, but for those who need the background, Black Lives Matter, often stylized as hashtag Black Lives Matter, is an international anti-racism movement birthed in the United States, founded in response to the acquittal of George Zimmerman in his trial for the accused murder of African-American Trayvon Martin in 2013. This movement began to gain international recognition in 2016 following a series of cases regarding police brutality towards African Americans. In 2020, the death of George Floyd at the hands of American police was captured on video and went viral, in arguably the worst nature a video should go viral. In a year dominated by the COVID pandemic, it garnered unprecedented attention from just about anyone and everyone, sparking a new wave of protests across the United States and other nations worldwide. The Black Lives Matter movement as we know it stems from three people, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi. These founding radicals, as they call themselves, set out the objective of the movement on the Black Lives Matter website to quote, eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. Despite these three being the founders of the first organisation under the name Black Lives Matter, there is no central organisation, nor is there a central figure. It is down to the individuals themselves to organise protests and events. All chapters of Black Lives Matter are established as being independently run from one another, but all fall under the banner of Black Lives Matter and most affiliate with the original organisation, though some choose to maintain some form of independence. Because of this, the focus of this episode will be primarily on the movement in the United States. However, I will touch on UK Black Lives Matter later on, which addresses perhaps some of the flaws with this structure. That aside, this seems mostly straightforward at the minute, doesn't it? I mean, a pro-black movement that seeks for more equality worldwide, stuck in systems that are meant to be there to protect black people, but are actually failing. Yeah. Straightforward? Um, well... In reality, this, this is where it just starts to get a bit more complicated. Is Black Lives Matter a virtue signalling, super political organisation? This is a relatively easy question to set straight, but still one that is important to clarify early on. Firstly, it is not an organisation but a movement made up of organisations that typically carry the same name or similar names based on location. This is important to clear up because this is one of several misconceptions of Black Lives Matter. Let me put it to you this way. If you have different organisations, you'll probably end up with only local leadership, which may differ slightly with the messages from other local organisations. In the broader perspective, none of the larger organisations stand out as a true leading group. Whilst you do have the original hashtag Black Lives Matter, there is no claim for leadership. 
The idea is that no individual or organization will be the central focus. The focus is entirely the message. Secondly, another way of answering this question is with, you know, another question. Is racism even a political issue? I mean, I personally don't think it is. I mean, that's just my opinion. And having looked at the dictionary definition of racism, there is nothing in there that implies that it is a political issue. It is a problem with society that needs to be addressed by the people and shouldn't necessarily be a problem that we should rely on politicians to sort out. Also, I believe that a normal human being believes that racism is just plain wrong and it should be eliminated with every reasonable means. I mean, that's just common sense now, isn't it? Thirdly, it's not political because the US federal government said so. The US Office of Special Counsel a government department which specialises in Hatch Act violations, an act which prevents federal agents and employees from demonstrating or participating in partisan political activities, determined that supporting Black Lives Matter is not partisan or political. Simply, it doesn't suggest allegiance to a specific political party and that it isn't a political issue. The ruling was determined by the fact that Black Lives Matter concerns itself by issues not unique to a single political party as well as having said itself that it will oppose any party that indicates opposition. The only side note is that federal agents cannot promote a certain party to vote for because they believe that party supports the Black Lives Matter movement. This ruling is similar to one made by the department regarding the Tea Party. For reference, the Tea Party is a fiscally conservative movement that advocates lower taxes, lower national debt, smaller government, all those sort of things that conservatives love. Whoa, 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 whoa. So, you're telling me Black Lives Matter is not political, yet I've heard from many places that they're just a bunch of Marxists. Ugh. They have to be political. I mean, they're Marxists after all. They're Marxists. 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 One of the things I saw and heard at the peak of the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, and something that I still see floating on the occasional social media posts regarding Black Lives Matter, is something along the lines of, Black Lives Matter is a, is a Marxist organisation, the founders are a bunch of commies, and it's, a, it's dangerous and a threat to our way of life. Well, firstly, the only people who should be fearing a change to their way of life are white supremacists, and those who are working in the system that help enable white supremacists. They'd want to make you probably believe that Black Lives Matter has a nuclear arsenal, say, and they want to start a war with every nation on Earth that uh, rejects their ideas. No, they just want greater equality. That's it. Um, and to get a message to white supremacists, it's just simply get over it. Of course, all this talk of Marxists does prompt a question that I wish to ask all the people that support Black Lives Matter and have an affiliation with Black Lives Matter, and it's this. Have you been conned into associating with the largest Marxist movement the Western world has ever seen? Well, don't panic if your answer was, wait, what? Because trust me when I tell you conclusively that you probably haven't been a victim of a massive Marxist swindle. Besides the narrative of a certain Trump administration, political commentators of a certain political orientation, and also some questionable news outlets that have fueled the suggestion, 
there are only two sort of legitimate stems for this belief. And before I reveal, I just want to assure you that as far-fetched as some of these ideas may seem to you, you just need to understand sort of what's going on in the other side. Of course, though, it's quite understandable if you don't understand, but I'll have a go anyway. Firstly, in 2015, an interview took place between Real News Network, yes, I know that sounds a little bit suspect and maybe a bit of an ironic name given the current climate around fake news, but we'll stick with it because it does appear to check out, and Colours, one of the aforementioned co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Colours described herself and one of her fellow co-founders as being, quote, trained Marxists. Already, that might be a red flag to some of you. And yes, please pardon the pun, red flags, Marxists. Do you get it? I hope you get it. Uh, let's just move on. Um, and within this context, we are going to ignore the fact that she does only say one of her other co-founders is Marxist and does not specify which of the other two co-founders is Marxist. And we're also going to ignore the fact that she omits the fact that her third co-founder could have, you know, relatively similar beliefs but are not trained Marxist. But again, we're going to ignore this. Through the statement, you could perhaps logically assume that a movement begun by Marxists will most likely have Marxist intentions. That is the nature of organisations and movements. It's based on beliefs, that it aligns to a particular way of thinking by those who have established said movement or organisation. To further support the idea of Marxist slash communists, a now-deleted page on the Black Lives Matter website titled What We Believe feature many phrases that suggested Marxist and communist undertones. Phrases such as the movement's desire at, quote, disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family and supporting each other as extended families and villages, with villages in their own set of quotation marks, perhaps implying not villages as we know it, but just a way of describing things in layman's terms. In essence, they are saying we should become a communal society. And yes, communal, communism, that's hardly a riddle. Additionally, there were multiple uses of the word comrade, which is a term used by communists to address friends and colleagues. Definitely makes you wonder, why would they delete this page? You can find this page by using the Wayback Machine and pasting the Black Lives Matter website link, which goes back as late as the start of June 2020, a page that has been around for quite a few years. Coincidence that this page was deleted just as Black Lives Matter was beginning to research last summer. Is it because they didn't want people to believe that they were falling for a Marxist ploy and that they could induct people unwittingly? Well, let's just stop the train of thought right there, shall we? Whilst I couldn't actually find an answer as to why this page was deleted, this sort of thinking was expressed in a suspect online article I came across during my research, which attempted to draw the links between communism and Black Lives Matter. It was an article titled something along the lines of, just like communists, Black Lives Matter is trying to delete their history. I mean, it's hardly history. It's a page on a website, which admittedly did have some interesting words and phrases, but nothing noticeable. Really, I think the most logical explanation is that using words and phrases like that would perhaps be off-putting to some, if not many, supporters. I, for instance, would probably have second thoughts had I saw this on their website in June. But this, of course, doesn't mean that they're trying to cover up their radical beliefs. No, no. After all, in the Her Story page on their website, they literally describe the three co-founders as being radicals. And all this stuff about them being Marxist from that interview I mentioned 
it's just found by a simple Google search. It's hardly been deleted well, especially if they admit being Marxist in 2015 before they really became front page, not to mention that it wasn't their own website, it was an unaffiliated outlet. That aside, let's look at a bit of historical and sociological context. Firstly, we have to understand that this is the United States we're talking about here, a country that has always been suspicious of anything remotely hinting at socialism of any sort, let alone Marxism. Let's not forget that for most of the last century, the United States was at ends with the Soviet Union over the ideas of communism and socialism versus capitalism. Additionally, the Red Scares in much of the earlier stages of the century, in response to the Bolshevik Revolution, have demonstrated many Americans as being fearful of preserving their way of life, and as such, are likely to have more extreme reactions to left-wing ideas. Okay, there aren't vigilantes around that hunt down people that they believe to be communists anymore, but a society that likes to pass off normal Americans that are just slightly more left-wing than prescribed in American society as being Marxist instantly is just what Americans have done for the last three generations or so. It's still ingrained somewhat. As researched by the Pew Research Center, just 42% of Americans have a positive impression of socialism, compared to 65% with a positive impression of capitalism. So we can firstly pass off these remarks as just, haha, Americans will be Americans. Secondly, let's look at this logically. As Professor Berman from Stanford University points out, if the leadership says it is Marxist, then there's a good chance they are. But this does not mean every supporter is Marxist. In mid-July, a survey carried out by Civics found that 50% of registered voters supported Black Lives Matter. To think that half of American voters were, in fact, Marxist would be a great surprise to many, I am sure, especially amongst the supporters themselves. Not to mention the fact that the New York Times discovered that across one week in July, between 15 and 26 million people participated in demonstrations, which could make it potentially the largest movement in United States history. Again, I highly doubt America would record its highest attended movement being one that is potentially Marxist, and I say that sarcastically. Professor Berman went on to conclude that emphatic support for gender identity politics sets it apart from Marxism, which are goals that he says do not appear to be expressly anti-capitalist. Obviously, we can't honestly assume Black Lives Matter is a Marxist movement if it doesn't actually have Marxist intentions. That is, not unless you are saying it because you have an agenda or are trying to smear the movement, easily promoting this sort of fake information to the unwitting or unwilling to be a sheep. To conclude upon this section, I will quote Dr. Alra from the Westminster School of Media and Communication regarding Black Lives Matter. It is not an organisation, but a fluid movement. It doesn't actually matter if one of its founders was liberal, Marxist, socialist or capitalist. I think we can say, matter of fact, that no, I'm not a Marxist, nor are the million supporters for this movement, and that this information is not only a misconception, it's just straight up fake news. Don't trust it. Oh, okay, so they're not Marxist then, but I've read many places where actually... You know, they're actually just a bunch of terrorists. A lot of them. All of them. Yes, I know you've just said that. There are millions of them, but, I mean, they're just supporters of this terrorist organisation. They know full well that they're just a bunch of violent thugs and all that rubbish. We don't want that kind of behaviour from a protest group that is trying to gain equal rights now, do we? I don't see Black Lives Matter as a voice for the black community in Minneapolis. That is a quote from Bob Kroll, president of the Police Officers Federation of Minneapolis. You might think that's a recent quote, 
but actually it's a quote from 2016. He went further than that at the time, saying in a CBS interview that Black Lives Matter was a quote, terrorist organisation, justifying himself saying, our governor said it was an act of domestic terrorism, whilst referring to a protest that had turned violent at the time. Ironic, isn't it? The same city that saw this kind of protest in 2016 would become the epicentre of the 2020 protest, given that it was the city George Floyd was killed in, resulting in supposed riots. I say supposed because when I hear the word riots, I think of fire, looting, citizens and police clashing, debris being hurled by rioters, tear gas and rubber bullets being fired by police. But was that the case? And were these riots as widespread as maybe we were led to believe in 2020? A study by the Armed Conflict Location and Events Data Project, or ACLED for short, did a study of around 7,750 Black Lives Matter protests from over 2,400 locations across the United States between the 26th of May and 22nd of August. It was determined that 93%, or just over 7,200 of these protests, were deemed as being non-violent. ACLA determined a violent protest as being acts targeting other individuals, property, business, other rioting groups or armed actors. In simpler words, their determination of violent protest ranged from vandalism to harming people and destruction. Additionally, ACLED wished to note that their study of violent protests, they were, quote, largely confined to specific blocks. So essentially, they were mostly limited to several streets and not a whole town or city. Furthermore, ACLED highlighted a morning consult poll in which 42% of respondents believed most protesters are trying to incite violence or destroy property. Evidently, this is a completely false narrative. Ackler also noted that in response to these protests, a quote, violent government response that saw authorities use force more often than not, and disproportionately use force while intervening in demonstrations associated with the Black Lives Matter movement relative to other types of demonstration. Again, in layman's terms, police were aggressive towards Black Lives Matter protesters overall, not just rioters, and were more aggressive compared to responses to other protests. This whole issue stemmed from the top as well, with President Trump generalising protesters as violent anarchists. Based on the data, this is a dangerously misleading statement that only the smallest minority of protesters should be included in, and even then, describing them as anarchists is a bit extreme, seemingly trying to imply that any violent protest that has ever happened has been a group of anarchists, rather than, as Martin Luther King has often been quoted as saying, riots are the language of the unheard. Of course, this is no justification for rioting, and as many will complain, this King quote has often been misquoted to justify violent protests. It is really important to note that the Black Lives Matter movement has not advocated forceful or violent protests, and that King was, well, the king of mobilising non-violent protests. So for the most part, protests were peaceful, and made up of civilised individuals, as is generally the case with most protests like this. Of course, there are exceptions to this, but they were not the representative majority that the former president and some media outlets would like to suggest it was. And if you're still not convinced, and are still fixated on the words of a now-deposed president, a lame-duck president, might I add, then there's more to this than just one stat and fact. In 2020, the Washington Post determined that only 3.7% of protests involved property damage or vandalism, with a portion of this being neither protesters nor police, but rather people that were exclusively engaging to use the protest to their advantage. 
as an excuse to vandalise and loot. Despite being an indeterminate amount, we know for a fact that people like this exist. People that are only interested in the self-gain side and without even needing to be involved. Plenty of videos and pictures showed up on social media, showing people showing off the items they looted during such times. But despite acknowledging these people, we must accept that these are probably a small proportion of this 3.7%. Of course, these kind of people with this kind of behaviour did cause a bit of a stir on social media by many. Not just the people that thought it was a bad representation of the Black Lives Matter protests, but just people complaining in general about the ideas of stealing property in such times. But then of course, this is just a bit of a distraction, and actually, it raises a very compelling question. What actually makes you think that this small percentage of vandalism and property damage is more important and beyond the message of what these protesters are protesting for? Why put the energy in? In other words, as Robin Kelly, an American historian, wrote in the New York Times in June 2020, what kind of society values property over black lives? Just think about that for a second. Even I was initially stumped by this question, because I was solely focused on the two aspects of this, being damages to business, and the moral side of stealing and vandalising. But then very quickly, it began to dawn on me the purpose of the question. You may have been led to believe that most Black Lives Matter protests have turned ugly and gone violent. We obviously now know that this is untrue, but stick with this. If you condemn Black Lives Matter on that simple basis, do you actually value property over lives? Or is it just that you don't like Black Lives Matter's more violent side because you associate it with black people being violent and aggressive because that also suits your agenda towards black people? Or is it just a sign of our morally bankrupt society that has been corrupted by the ideas of capitalism where property is the most important thing to an individual? Kelly points that, quote, it deflects from the core problem that brought people into the street in the first place, end quote. If you truly determine that black lives don't matter because businesses got wrecked, then you are the reason why people believe they need to act in such a way to get you to notice and listen to them. It's a cycle that, of course, comes with its own cans of worms, but will continue until what can only be described as the true problem is recognised by everyone. Kelly then cites the 1968 Baltimore riots, where looters were seen as criminal elements of black communities, and therefore law enforcement could demand more funding, when in fact, it's more likely that a lot of looters were actually white. But of course, because of its association with black Americans protesting the assassination of Martin Luther King, it is then perceived as these people being the only ones involved with the looting. President Johnson then proceeded to increase federal police funding, backing his war on poverty policy. Clearly, this is not exactly the same as the modern day, but the generalisation happened then, and it's happened again, which could lead to the same results of unfairly investing into more policing, particularly into black communities, which is, in essence, part of this problem that began this whole movement. Back to the philosophical arguments, you then had Philanese Floyd, George Floyd's brother, having a hearing at the House Judiciary Committee back in June 2020. Amongst many things, he asked, is that what a black man's worth? $20. George Floyd died because of a case of counterfeit money being used at a store. As many point out, George Floyd was no angel and did hold a notable rap sheet. Drugs and armed robbery are the most notable too. 
However, to suggest that he warranted death by the hands of police for these crimes is beyond insane. To suggest as such, it only polarises people and flares up tension. Perhaps he should not have been martyred to the same extent the protests did, but the fact of the matter is that a black man was killed by police without reason. He begged for his life. So I'll ask you what Floyd asked the House Judiciary Committee. Is that what a black man's worth? $20. As Opal Tometi stated, I just don't equate the loss of life and the loss of property. I can't even hold those two in the same regard. The police keep killing us with impunity. Instead, once the burning and looting start, the media often shifts to the futility of the violence as a legitimate path to justice. In essence, what she means is that the police that commit brutality get away without consequence. It's only the people that riot that the media want to focus on, and the way that the media portray it is that the violent protesters see it as the only way of getting change, and that actually it's a pointless method. Compare this to what Martin Luther King said in 1967. Alienated from society, and knowing that this society cherishes property above people, the looter is shocking it by abusing property rights. If the violation of the law by the white man in the slums over the years were calculated and compared with the law-breaking of a few riots, the hardened criminal would be the white man. Again, what King meant was that looters are well aware of property being valued more by society than people, and that those who riot are the ones everyone will likely pass off as being the criminals, rather than the white criminals in the slums that commit more and more likely serious crimes without fearing the same consequences as the rioters. Of course, you could not cover every single crime committed by white people in the slums on the news. But because it's not covered at all, we failed to see this in the background to a large group of people rioting. The collective minority can overshadow the individual majority. Obviously, we do need to address the impact of local businesses getting destroyed. These are not global corporations that have millions of dollars in their pockets to simply repair and reopen. This is their livelihoods and savings that may have been completely destroyed. Michael Tracy, an independent journalist, toured multiple states to interview many small business owners. Ironically, he reported that the primary victims are themselves minorities and were targeted by activist whites. This prompted many of the businesses to sign that they were a black-owned business. Whilst on the one hand, we can interpret it as a request to be left unharmed by protesters, perhaps we can also infer some pride in the statement. Regardless, we must not completely ignore those who have suffered as a result of these riots, but the most important thing is to recognise our priorities. Property, things that have been briefly been greatly damaged by a select number of individuals, or black people, most of whom who have had to live their lives at some point in fear of discrimination of some form or another. And also, I want to pick up on one thing that was mentioned by Michael Tracy in his article, saying that they were targeted by activist whites. And that got me thinking, just how useful were white people in the Black Lives Matter movement protests? Ugh, all you... Black Lives Matter people are all the same. It's always about how white people are white supremacists and all white trash and all that rubbish. White people are the reason the slaves got freed. White people are also the reason why they were given the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s. White people have done more for black people than black people have done for themselves. Clearly. It's all a load of rubbish, all this stuff about Black Lives Matter. White people have done so much, why are they always getting hate? Nia Miranda was just another ordinary Black Lives Matter protester in Beverly Hills. 
That is, until she noticed something going on outside of Starbucks. Two white women in the process of tagging it with BLM. Miranda filmed her encounter with the two women, trying to tell them to stop doing what they were doing. It would have went on black people, and it would have been told that the protesters became rioters, and it became looting, and that wasn't the case at all, is what she told ABC News. I saw this video last year, and having come across it again, it got me wondering, have white people actually helped or hindered the Black Lives Matter movement? Of course, this was just a single incident, but just how many others lacked this awareness in their attempts to supposedly help the black cause? And what did black protesters and organise make of the involvement of white people? This was the largest rabbit hole I encountered when doing research for this topic. I'd expected to go over this concept at the same length and detail as all the others. However, the involvement of white people in Black Lives Matter came with its own cans of worms and general turns and corners that I sort of hadn't expected to come across. The general interpretation I got overall though, from all the articles I used for my research, is that there is a sense of wariness towards the scale of involvement of white people. A sense of understanding and relief for the support is marked by high amounts of scepticism. Speaking with National Public Radio in September 2020, Benjamin O'Keefe, a political organiser in Senator Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign, said, It's our turn to lead our own fight, to frame our own conversation. We exist in a white supremacist culture in which even people who want to do good do not necessarily want to be led by a black person. Ignoring even the white supremacist remark, we can perhaps still understand the frustration held by many black people over the involvement of white people in fighting for black equality. That there are many white people that wish to be known to be the ones that brought this equality. To say that they were there, and perhaps not necessarily for what the message was. Are you here for an Instagram picture? He further remarks. White people often come to these protests and they want to lead them, and they want to be screaming the loudest, and they want to throw things at police. This is certainly a very large generalisation. I have no doubt that I, and many protesters would agree, that the majority of white people that demonstrated did so appropriately and followed by example of the organisers and fellow protesters, black and white alike. But I do not entirely disagree with the idea that there were certainly people in it for the social media clout. Again, this is something I will talk about later on, but this is to give a sense to some people that got involved purely for their egotistical beliefs and social status. This feeling was not exclusive to just modern black protests. This was a feeling that happened in the height of the civil rights campaign in the 1960s, in an era where perhaps it was more understandable to be sceptical of white support, given just how divided America was between black and white, I mean literal segregation. We were concerned they would assume responsibilities for things we wanted young black people to assume. Such a large number of whites coming down, I thought they'd overwhelm the still fragile roots of the grassroots movement we were trying to build. That was from Charlie Cobb, who was an organiser for the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee in Mississippi in the 1960s. Taking both these accounts, two different black perspectives from two different eras of protesting, we can understand both of their qualms about white support. On the one hand, there was the distrust in the time before the Civil Rights Act, versus the here and now, where we have the Civil Rights Act and several additions and amendments to similar laws in the United States since, where there is still distrust that despite these laws and promises of equality, equality is seemingly an illusion. Christopher Coles, activist and poet, asked at a protest to tackle this head-on, whether the white people in attendance recognise that they come, quote, because it's an elective. We come because it's survival. You get to be an ally one day and just white the next. 
you get to live and lean on your privilege. But if you've got privilege, start spending it. The privilege Cole speaks of is not just your typical you have white privilege type preach, but rather making white people recognize that they have the choice to support black people in their struggle for equal rights. If you're able to be in such a position, then you should use it in such a way that can benefit everyone by amplifying the voices for change, not trying to overcome the voices. So what were the reasons behind white motivation? And why was it that in previous cases there was not this same level of support? Professor Berry of the University of Pennsylvania and former chair of the US Commissions on Civil Rights and Professor Steinberg of the University of Michigan Law School and director of its Civil Rights Litigation Initiative sought to answer these questions, speaking to the undefeated in June 2020. Professor Steinberg believes that large numbers of white people thought the system was being fixed after Ferguson, after marches, after the Ferguson report, diversity, equality and inclusion training, racial sensitivity training, cameras worn by officers. They thought that reform would work and the system could be fixed, that it's a matter of bad apples. For context, in case you weren't aware, Ferguson was the unrest that began in the summer of 2014 when Michael Brown was shot and killed by a police officer. The Ferguson report was made in response to determine racial disparities that adversely impacted black Americans. I note this because whilst I recognise the name Ferguson, I actually was not really all that aware of what it was or the events surrounding it, nor the Ferguson report. Which begs the question of why there was not 2020 levels of support in 2014. As Professor Steinberg rightly points out, white people should have known these things happened before the videos. It was a really long overdue wake-up call for many, many people. Of course, being in the UK and only being 12 at the time may have had something to do with it, but given how important of an event it was in recent times in regard to race relations in the United States, the fact I only find out nearly seven years later perhaps suggests that it was an issue that has been allowed to sit on the back burner until a specific trigger brings out a response. Professor Berry believes that this whole protest, writ large, is a protest against Trump. Of course, we have to recognise the context of the times. A highly controversial president that was approaching a possible re-election was certainly a prompt for this turnout in 2020. That is not to say that his predecessor, President Obama, wasn't controversial, as was the view by many conservatives with his radical policies like the Affordable Health Care Act, aka Obamacare. But many Democrat supporters and even moderate and some conservative Republican supporters were very clear about their opposition to President Trump. Additionally, in the COVID era, with many stuck at home, not going to work or school, it presented a time in which there was no distraction of day-to-day -day life to ignore what was happening anymore. George Floyd's final moments being filmed and viewed by the masses was the straw that broke the camel's back. But given it's now approaching one year since the COVID pandemic shut down most of the world and vaccines are hitting large, and given how the political scene in the United States was dominated by the highly controversial presidential election results in November and the Capitol riots in January, you could argue this will be the Black Lives Matter movement's finest hour. As Professor Berry noted, the protests that happened could be wrapped up in a nice little symbolic package rather than address the real underlying causes of the problems. For a brief time, in the toughest of times in recent years, black people united with white people and were able to make a statement to their lawmakers and to the world. But what will happen once COVID is over and things start going back to normal? Will the response of white people return to what it once was? I'm hoping the protest movement writes itself. It would be nice to have the white people who are involved to stick with it and Black Lives Matter to get some more momentum and keep going until they actually get something done. 
Professor Berry closes. Already, the indication seems to be that only time will be able to tell. However, that's not looking very promising at this point. A New York Times article from June 2020, titled Black Activists Wonder, Is Protesting Just Trendy for White People?, took accounts from several young protesters demonstrating the initial compassion of the protest, showing genuine signs that the younger generations were prepared to do what they could to help. But the article comes with scathing criticism. Some white protesters identify as liberal and said they had been long sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter movement, but had not done much, if anything, before to show it. And other white people believe that the police did not discriminate, but changed their minds because of Floyd's killing. Whilst this may seem as harshly critical, it does go back to the real question. Where were white people before? Did it really have to take a pandemic and a president they didn't like for them to decide to actually do something? Nothing was stopping them beforehand. A virus was attempting to stop them, and yet they still turned up. Co-founder Tometi also voiced her concerns about it, saying she had minor trepidation and that it could end up being a trend. When all the social media posts die down, will the actions and people's convictions for change die down too? Similarly was what Adilka Pimentel, lead organiser at Make the Road New York, said. I worry about all the support dying down, mostly because it's what happens. Eric Garner, Mike Brown, Ferguson. Given what is currently ongoing in 2021, I believe they had every right to be concerned, because as it's shown, people have simply lost interest. Whilst not just a criticism of white people, but also of black people, it seems to me that the only occasional story makes the headlines, but it's not actually anything significant. Perhaps it could be due to the expansion of the movement, that it is equally dependent on the participation of white people to give the movement its significance, as well as being dependent on black people to maintain their voices for change as the times continue. As Anthony Beckford, president of Black Lives Matter in Brooklyn said, their privilege can amplify the message, but they can never speak for us. Whilst these quotes were from his criticism of white involvement, we can take this sentence out of context here to make the point that white involvement is very important, but they can't be the ones trying to carry the message. Beckford's annoyance towards white involvement is most likely not down to the opposition, but general suspicion, especially towards people that attempt to align their movement but are trying to modify the message for different gains. He said he had to shut down a white organised protest as their message was, to paraphrase, yes, Black Lives Matter, and Police Lives Matter too. And rightfully, Beckford remarked, you can think of the Kumbaya moment when we get our mission completed. After all, what is the point in diverting from the central issue at hand? What would that really achieve? Aside from obviously agitating quite a large number of the people protesting at the issue at hand, we can't ignore the numbers though, that white people contributed to the summer movement, with white protesters making up 61% of those surveyed in New York, 65% in Washington, and 53% in Los Angeles. Additionally, white people are the reason this wave of protest was able to become one of the largest, maybe even the largest, movement in American history. Douglas McAdam, sociologist from Stanford University, noted that since Ferguson in 2014, every highly publicised death of a black man in police custody brought protests, quote, overwhelmingly in the black community. And as we saw, this definitely was not limited to black communities. It was all communities that came out to protest. Interestingly, a survey carried out by Dr. Fisher and Dr. Heaney, sociologists from University of Maryland and political scientists from the University of Michigan, respectively, found that 45% of white motivation was Trump, 
whilst only 32% of black motivation was Trump. Whilst not being the overall majority reason for white motivation, I believe it's not a coincidence that it being election year that so many white people chose to turn out, COVID aside. On top of this, 71% of white responses to a Monmouth University poll found racism and discrimination a big problem back in June 2020. However, this poll may have been a bit preemptive to show a change in the tide, as Dr. Jefferson, political scientist at Stanford University, discovered. Only 49% of white Americans say police are more likely to use excessive force against a black culprit. More than half of white Americans are, in essence, denying that police brutality against black people is more than white. I can say that just the other day, I saw an article talking about police brutality against an Asian American man where he died after receiving the George Floyd technique, being knelt on his neck for a considerable amount of time. That was the first time I've seen a news article at the time of the event being about police brutality that wasn't towards a black man. And before anyone mentions, yes, I think it's quite poor how little this death has been publicised, regardless of the fact that it wasn't a black man, it was still a man of a minority background. Furthermore, questions have been raised over the fact that the responding officers were not wearing any body cameras, not to mention that, unlike Floyd whose criminal history saw strong opposition by some, this man was a Navy veteran for the United States. A nation that likes to pride itself over the treatment of its veterans have really pulled the number here. I'd like to think this is not the first time you've heard this story, but if so, this is another one that needs to be spread, and I'd highly encourage you to search this one up. But let's take a quick deep dive into the underlying motivations for white people. Professor Jeffries, teaching history at Ohio State University, observed that when black people have protested in the past, it is typically responding to intolerable and immediate injustices, citing the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. Meanwhile, white people tend to protest over more abstract goals, such as economic inequality or the melting of glaciers. There is a shared sense of the problem, but your immediate objective is fundamentally different, Jeffrey said. But yet again, there could still be the ulterior motive for white people to contribute. As mentioned briefly earlier, the problem that social media clout is causing with regards to protesting causes and political activism is one that people may not see as being as big as a problem as it actually is. AJ Lovelace is a filmmaker and activist, and he says, It was obvious to me that people were out here to say they were out there. White girls would agitate police, then cry when they responded. This isn't how a protest works. I feel like white people get caught up in the game of politics and they lose the focus that this is not just about that. The danger here is that it could cause damage to the credibility of such a movement, where people acting in this manner end up causing issues within the ranks that, again, distracts from the protests themselves and their messages. Rather, they deal with some individuals that aren't taking things seriously and are there thinking they can simply charge in, all for them to have that interesting story to share that makes up 95% of their personality. It's just wrong and needs to stop. I'll talk about social media in a few moments to expand on this, but I'm just going to bring this section here to a close. Quote, White allies realise the gravity of the movement and want to make sure they are on the right side of history. Their presence in the civil rights movement overshadowed the courage of the original black activists. That was William Sturkey, historian at the University of North Carolina. Besides your Malcolm X's, your Martin Luther King's, your Rosa Parks, how many other black activists can you name that were behind the massive civil rights movement in the United States? Off the top of my head, I can't name them. 
the only other names that come to mind are President Kennedy and President Johnson. Whilst I'm not convinced it is the intention of white people to try and overshadow, nor take charge, far from it, white people have harmed the Black Lives Matter movement quite substantially. That's not to say they have not been helpful either. They have helped significantly. And at the end of the day, we have to remember white people are the majority in the United States. It is ultimately on them to vote and participate in an active way that will help the black cause. The problem I have is, is that I have not seen enough in the media or anything to suggest that the majority of the majority are willing to change. And that is only backed by the stats and facts I have aforementioned. To put things into a final frame, in June 2020, YouGov polled whether people thought racism to be a big problem. 45% of white people thought it was. In September, the same poll was carried out again. 38%. My defence rests. Well, if there's one thing we're going to agree on, social media is just absolute cancer in regards to political activism. I mean, everyone thinks they're doing something by just sharing a simple post that they didn't even create themselves. It's just lazy. Everyone's just become lazy these days. So if you're actually going to do something, do it the right way. Okay, maybe that was a bit of an exaggeration. And yes, I might sound a bit outdated with that kind of opinion. But don't underestimate the influences and the dark side of such a movement. Regardless of the direct or indirect or non-association with the movement, the one thing that will always be a problem is social media. And this applies for every movement and any movement that is in regards to sociopolitics. In a world where almost everyone has a smartphone in their pocket, with some form of platform to share their lives, their thoughts, opinions, it is very easy for the ego of an individual to overcome their judgement. So, do black lives only matter when it's trendy for them to matter? This is arguably down to interpretation, it's down to the individual to decide whether this is just a case of slacktivism, aka simply reading a headline, or skimming an article or post and just sharing it on social media and feeling you have done something proactive, or whether it is genuinely a case of activism. The fundamental issue about talking about this section is that there isn't entirely a whole lot of data to go off of. So in essence, I am making quite general and perhaps maybe broad assumptions, but with the limited stats and facts that I do have, I'm going to try and keep it based upon that, and I will also provide some input on my opinion with regards to these stats and facts. The only real case I have of social media with regards to the Black Lives Matter movement is Blackout Tuesday. This was something that actually quite annoyed me. As someone who considers themselves a supporter of Black Lives Matter, I thought Blackout Tuesday was the epitome of lazy slacktivism taking over the internet for a day. Just as a bit of context, Blackout Tuesday was on the 2nd of June in 2020, where people would post nothing but a black square on their social media, often tagging Black Lives Matter and hashtagging with hashtag Black Lives Matter and hashtag Blackout Tuesday. However, this wasn't actually the original intention. CNBC reported around 15 million posts on Instagram doing as such. On top of this, CBS went off air for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, the same length of time that George Floyd's neck was knelt on. Furthermore, many music platforms exclusively promoted black artists to listen to that day. Now, why would this be seen as controversial? Well, given the sheer volume of posts with the hashtags and tags, 
a lot of people genuinely trying to find informative posts on social media were simply unable to because all they could see were hundreds upon thousands upon millions of black squares. Information such as protests being organised was completely lost. Now in the long run, this was probably only a minor setback. I mean, it was one day after all. But I believe this presented sheer ignorance en masse. The message by activists in response to this were something along the lines of amplify black voices without silencing the movement. So how was Blackout Tuesday originally meant to play out? The initial move, started by two music executives, merely wanted people to take a day to just refrain from posting regular content, and if they were to post, it would be something to actively support the black cause. And of course, one of the main things that all these black squares were missing? The entire point. Quite literally. They often featured no donation links, no links to pages organising protests, no links to black works to encourage supporting black artists or local businesses that were owned by black people. If you posted a black square on Blackout Tuesday, actually think and maybe tell me what you actually achieved by doing so. Showing you're an anti-racist to all your followers. Is, is that it? Because I can tell you, you're hardly showing support for a massive movement like Black Lives Matter by doing that. If your excuse was to try and show you're anti-racist, it's quite a pathetically lame excuse. Your expectation should be everyone is anti-racist. You don't need to prove to anyone or everyone that you are. I am obviously not the voice for the movement, but I'm trying to get you to understand that if you are going to try and contribute, do so by being actually productive. Better you do nothing than do something that accomplishes nothing besides reassuring your ego and personal image and actually also ends up clogging social media. So yes, I did not do anything then. Perhaps I should have done more and been more proactive and maybe shared one of these links I was talking about, like a donation link, or shared something about a local protest going on, or shared information about a local black business near me. Perhaps I should have done that. But my belief is that if you do such a thing, you're falling for the trap of slacktivism. I mean, okay, I share articles on my Twitter all the time, from BBC News, Sky News, you know, the news outlets I can follow and access freely online. But... I don't actually think I'm doing something proactive by sharing that. I just think it's an interesting article to share to people. It's not really anything more than keeping myself aware as opposed to keeping anyone else aware. It's just, oh, I've read this article. Might as well share it, see if anyone else finds it interesting. That's it. It's awareness. And whilst we're on the topic of trendy Black Lives Matter, etc., there is one other indicator to me to suggest that Black Lives Matter is just nothing but something that was trendy last summer and now it's just a thing that happened. The question I ask is, when was the last time was there a protest that was specifically Black Lives Matter that happened or was going to happen that you are aware of? According to Wikipedia, the George Floyd protests, as they have now been coined, have been ongoing since last May and are still continuing. But are they? A quick Google search suggests that at least no major protests have occurred since the run-up to the United States election results, and even then, there was very little significance to them in relation to Black Lives Matter, and more of just people on the behalf of Black Lives Matter protesting about the election. Protests are ongoing, huh? Well, when I researched this section, 
there was only one protest upcoming for Black Lives Matter that I could actually find. And that was the one in Minneapolis that was going to occur at Derek Chauvin's trial, the officer that was being charged with George Floyd's death. The trial protests were being organised by both Black Lives Matter and the NAACP. The fact I could only find such information on a local news site in Minneapolis does very much indicate to me that the media is just simply no longer interested and no longer feels that they need to continue coverage of any ongoing protests. This is understandable because obviously the media is there to cover what is contemporary, what is happening at the time, the here and now. However, the media will orientate towards what they believe as the public perception of news, as in what is new. You know, it's quite self-explanatory. In other words, the public loses interest, therefore the media stops its coverage. Additionally, as I talked about, the media lent towards reporting on the protests because they were large-scale at the time, particularly those that turned violent, because, you know, there were so few of those, they felt they should cover it. But obviously, this then creates unnecessary perceptions in the media, but, you know, that happens. This is a combined response between the media and the public. You get the sense another prompt is, unfortunately, needed to re-grasp the attention of the public in order for this to hit the headlines again, aka another black person falling victim to police brutality or some widely reported hate crime towards a black person. I mentioned in the previous section that an Asian American man suffered from the George Floyd technique and then ended up dying. That hasn't really hit the front pages of world news now, has it? So clearly it has to be a black man. Let's just summarise by comparing Black Lives Matter to the civil rights movement. In the 1950s and 60s, there was a certain focus on individual protests and people who are now of historical significance. The movement never went away and was able to stay strong across the whole period of the civil rights movement. Every year, there was something that happened. And then eventually, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964 and continued to stay strong up until Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968, which would be essentially the end of the civil rights movement. Of course, it goes without saying. Back then, they didn't need social media. They just needed media, aka the newspapers and, you know, the very primitive versions of television news and word of mouth. In the modern day, Black Lives Matter is solely reliant on people's participation through social media. And that clearly is both its greatest strength, but also its greatest weakness. Social media has the ability to connect millions upon millions of people to do something together. Yet, if it begins to lose interest amongst all of them, then social media is nothing. And as I said, with you know my example of Blackout Tuesday, clearly social media can also do as much damage as it can do help. The solution to the problem seems very, very, very simple to me. You lot are all overcomplicating things. Just pass another civil rights act or something that actually is better than the current one, or something like that. I don't know. I mean, can't be that hard. I mean, if you make it illegal, surely that should guarantee the equal rights. Basically. At a glance at Congress, such a symbolic piece of legislation similar to the Civil Rights Act, seen as the end goal by many, has failed to emerge and will not likely emerge at the current time unless President Biden unexpectedly brings forward a groundbreaking executive order. 
as of present, there are only four pieces of legislation I could find that were in response to the 2020 protests. They are the Restoration of the Civil Rights Act of 2019, the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act, the Civil Rights Enhancement and Law Enforcement Accountability Improvement Act of 2020, quite the mouthful that one I know, and finally the Justice for All Act of 2020. What do each of these acts mean? So the Restoration of the Civil Rights Act of 2019. Making provisions under the Multiple Civil Rights Acts about making official complaints because of colour of law more enforceable. For context, colour of law is the appearance of legal power that may actually break the law. So an example is a police officer arresting someone without probable cause to arrest that person. The Act wants to make it so that it is more enforceable to make a complaint about such a case. As of right now, the bill is with the House Committee on the Judiciary, the same place it was referred to on the 4th of June last year. Nothing has happened to it since. Next, the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act. Make Juneteenth a national holiday. For reference, Juneteenth is the day the slaves were emancipated, so it's often known as something similar like Emancipation Day or something like that. As of right now, the bill is with the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. Again, the same place it was referred to on the 18th of June. Nothing has happened to it since. Civil Rights Enhancement and Law Enforcement Accountability Improvement Act of 2020. Making it so that employers of police officers that act under colour of law are liable for what that officer is responsible for, dependent on the extent of how much the officer's actions denied someone their constitutional rights, preventing officers claiming immunity because of the fact that they are police officers. An example of this would be that a superior officer is responsible if one of their officers commits police brutality. Of the four acts made in response to the 2020 protests, I think this one is the most important one, as in theory, it would prevent cases such as George Floyd happening again. I mean, it wouldn't, but the idea of more accountability to officers is what is key here, to prevent them from getting away with daylight murder. But this isn't quite what the Black Lives Matter is after, but it's certainly a start. Alas, as with the other two bills, this was referred to the House Committee on the Judiciary on the 29th of July. Nothing has happened since. Finally, the Justice for All Act of 2020, making it easier to claim discrimination under specific civil rights statutes based on the disparate impact. It essentially is an expansion on protections guaranteed by various acts in regards to civil rights. This was referred to the House Committee on the Judiciary and the House Committee on Education and Labour on the 27th of October. Can you guess what's happened to that? Same story with all the other acts. Nothing. Nothing's happened since it was referred. To a certain extent, it's not actually a problem with the acts themselves, more just the problems with Congress in itself. I mean, even in a normal year, Congress only passes about 2-4% to of the bills that they get raised. For context, around 10,000 to 15,000 bills are presented to Congress every year. Particularly in a time when COVID relief is taking priority, it seems as though these acts will probably never see the light of day again. Congressional legislation typically succeeds when there is major support by both congressional members as well as large sections of the public. Unless this support is gained, not even a hearing will be had, let alone bills being passed. Currently, Black Lives Matter are advocating for the passing of the BREATHE Act, BREATHE in all caps. It is a bill that would address racial injustice and police brutality by advocating reforms. As an omnibus bill, it is broken down into four broad sections that cover the bases. Section 1, divesting federal resources from incarceration and policing 
and ending criminal legal system harms, the defunding the police bit, and putting in more protection for black people from being discriminated against by the legal system. Section 2. Investing in new approaches to community safety, utilising funding incentives, funding alternative to police, and ensuring that community will still have forms of justice and safeguarding that is fair and equal. Section 3. Allocating new money to build healthy, sustainable and equitable communities for all people, aka investing into poorer black communities that will help ensure that fewer communities resolve to crime as a way of staying afloat. Section 4. Holding political leaders accountable and enhancing self-determination of black communities. That one is a bit more self-explanatory. Holding political leaders to account and enhancing the capabilities of black communities to help themselves. Within these sections, there would be also plans to demilitarize communities. In other words, gun control of military-grade weapons like automatic rifles and the sorts. Plus, there is a timeline to close federal prisons and immigration detention centers with the abolishment of ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Crucially, it calls for the repeal of the controversial Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, most commonly known as the Crime Bill. The Crime Bill has a reputation for essentially resulting in a disproportionate number of black people being incarcerated due to the provisions of the Act. The Act most prominently featured a free strikes provision, which meant that repeat offenders of one serious violent felony and any other two crimes would serve a mandatory life sentence. On top of that, it increased funding for prisons and policing as well as the expansion of crimes that would result in the federal death penalty. Whilst the bill is yet to find ground in Congress, this is the current objective of Black Lives Matter for the law to be passed. But for now, it is a mere end goal, and it's not looking close, to be honest. Well, there's one thing you can trust England to do, right? Is it gets things about racism, right? You know, we're not a racist country, and we don't have a police force that kills black people on a regular basis. I mean, okay, it's not good in the United States, but hey, sucks to be them, right? I mean, I know that's a bit insensitive, but let's just be honest. The UK is just better at dealing with these kind of things. It would never get out of control like over there in the United States. The structure of the Black Lives Matter movement being reliant on grassroots movements is not a structure we have not seen before. After all, this was generally the structure of the civil rights protests in the 20th century in the United States, bar the ideas of social media. However, the very clear issue here is that without a central organisation that claims to be the leading arm of the movement, no manifesto either, nor figurehead, it means that the messages will get diluted or concentrated or even completely changed so that different issues are addressed. Now, of course, different nations have varying issues regarding racial equality. And I did mention in the intro, sort of, about the UK. The problem here is less police brutality, but rather the issues of petty and everyday discrimination. For example, disproportionate numbers of black people being stopped and searched by the police or the fact that people with Asian or African-sounding names have to statistically apply for more jobs before getting accepted, or the general xenophobic attitudes of many British people, particularly in the now post-Brexit era beginning, with now more polarised attitudes towards border control and immigration. Regardless, the messages towards police is the big part of the Black Lives Matter movement, and fortunately, in the UK, only selective numbers of police hold any form of firearm, with them having been specifically trained to use their firearm, with the near-total majority carrying stun tasers and batons. Of course, we don't have the Second Amendment to have the right to bear arms as citizens. But of course, 
that doesn't justify any form of discrimination by the British police. And in fact, some may argue that, to an extent, British racism is worse than American racism because it's mostly been held underground. It's never been brought to the surface and brought to light in quite the same way that it has in the United States. Obviously, we're not making it a competition here. People are killed in the United States on a regular basis by police because of their skin colour. But the point here is that it's actually addressed. Everyone knows it's happening. Whilst here in the UK, there is a culture of denial about racism. In the UK, Liberty found that black people are nine times as likely to be stopped and searched by the police than white people. Which is interesting given that black people make up only 3% of the British population, yet somehow make up 22% of total stops and searches. Even more astounding is that black people are subject to 48% of suspicionless stops and searches, which is the most by a clear margin of all ethnic groups in the UK. Clearly this is quite a big problem that needs addressing. So clearly this is what people chose to voice in the UK protest, right? Funnily enough, they didn't. In fact, they chose to stick with the initial message of defund the police. I will come back to the message of defund the police thing later in the episode. But with regards to how this message is portrayed in the UK, I don't think it is the solution at all. As statistics show from the Institute for Government, the UK policing budget has been shrinking in the last decade. I don't mean there hasn't been technically more money to spend, but rather there has been less afforded in the annual budget towards day-to-day -day policing every year than compared to other sectors. And in theory, with something like these stop and search numbers, the most effective way of dealing with this is actually either investing money more appropriately into racial sensitivity training or just generally increasing the amount of police spending. In theory, nobody is actually being hurt by these stop and search numbers, but the reality is, is that there is clearly systemic racism that needs to be stomped out, and unless there is a reasonable or other alternative to this, then what is the other solution? Perhaps the British police should take more responsibility for these statistics and do what they can within their forces to try and deal with any officers in question, and additionally lobbying MPs to push legislation through so police are held more accountable with regards to racism towards civilians. It's just an idea, but defunding the police is not the answer in the UK. That is the major takeaway we have to have here. The other concerning part about UK BLM is that it is an embodiment of what people fear Black Lives Matter as a movement is. In an old tweet posted on the UK BLM Twitter, there were photos which listed the aims of UK BLM. The things that stood out were that the police should be abolished and that it called for the destruction of capitalism an anarcho-communist organisation. You know what? You know what I was saying earlier on about violent organisation and Marxist group? I'm going to be completely honest here. I agree with that with regards to UK Black Lives Matter. It's funny because the Black Lives Matter organisation in the United States does not call for either of these objectives. Now you start to see the problems here, don't you? Non-central organisation causes problems caused by different arms. As political activist Femi Oluwole wrote in The Big Issue in December 2020, many of us that consider ourselves part of the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement strongly oppose the UK organisation that was set up in its name. This then obviously leads to the problems with how Black Lives Matter is conveyed as a movement here in the UK. The aims and objectives of UK BLM is one of the fundamental problems with it and probably one of the reasons why the BBC has felt it necessary to ban its presenters and guests from expressing support for Black Lives Matter. 
but this does lead to a whole other issue of virtual signaling regarding wearing poppies, for example, but I'm not going to go into that. One other problem with UK BLM was also the conduct of certain protests, namely statue toppling and vandalism. I would like to point out and remind you that in the earlier section when I was talking about violence, ACLED would determine statue toppling and vandalism as, yes, being violent protests. Whilst I don't disagree that statues and monuments of slavers and recognised races should be removed as soon as possible and really should never have been erected in the first place, the way it was conducted by some protesters to take matters into their own hands is completely unacceptable. The graffiti of Churchill's statue, the toppling of the statue of the slaver Edward Colston in Bristol, that is the line being crossed. That is not peaceful protest and only damages the movement, hence my point earlier that UKBOM is the embodiment of what people don't like about Black Lives Matter because that is the reputation it will gain, a violent Marxist organisation, even though UKBOM is completely off the rails with its aims. And the rather damning thing is that whilst the media and many individuals condemned the actions, a lot of supporters for Black Lives Matter in the UK attempted to justify what happened, but I think it can't be shrugged off. Finishing up with the UK, I just want to briefly talk about the taking the knee gesture. I'm sure you're all familiar with how this came about and why it's happening. Colin Kaepernick initiated the gesture when he chose to kneel during the US national anthem. Initially, he wanted to take a seat, but was advised by Nate Boyer, former military veteran and NFL player, to actually take the knee to be respectful. The immediate response was highly negative, with Kaepernick being called unpatriotic by many and President Trump calling him a son of a bitch. Of course, in 2020, this developed a dual symbolism, with the sign of solidarity against the American institution, as well as the knee being the way in which George Floyd was killed at the knee of police. Since the protest, there is only one place I still see this gesture happening. Every Premier League and English Football League game. This gesture is continued at the start of every Premier League match and demonstrates both the reasons why it does need to still happen and equally why it needs to stop. According to the Daily Mail, 80% of the Professional Footballers Association supported continuing the gesture in December 2020. Whilst there is still a desire to keep the gesture separate from politics, the stadiums and several broadcasters still promote Black Lives Matter. Whether it's political is less of the issue here though, but rather the impression it sends to viewers, and briefly fans, for when they were allowed to be back in the stadiums. As I said, the impression of Black Lives Matter in the UK has been arguably more critical here than in the United States, as UK BLM is creating a fairly negative press for the movement. This was demonstrated by the fact that at three English Football League games, when fans were briefly allowed back at the tail end of 2020, fans booed players taking the knee. Furthermore, several clubs such as Brentford and QPR have come out and stated they will refuse to take the knee anymore as they believe the gesture had been diluted, as QPR's director of football, Celeste Ferdinand, described it. Additionally, a few players, most notably Crystal Palace player Wilfred Zaha, recently came out and said that he will no longer take the knee either as he finds it degrading, and as such, at a recent Premier League football match, he was the first player not to take the knee before the match. Coming from players and former players that have and were subject to significant amounts of racial abuse, they make a compelling argument, one that I, again, completely agree with. 
Whilst this goes back to the whole nobody can represent the Black Lives Matter movement, I believe that their experiences are invaluable in tailoring the messages of anti-racism in British society. The reform I call for with English football matches is either change the gesture, as it is completely unrepresentative of the initial message that Kaepernick was trying to present, remove the gesture entirely, and just kick off games like how they were prior to the restart in early 2020, and slash or remove promotion of Black Lives Matter, and instead replace it with the Premier League or EFL's own promotion for anti-racism campaigns, being say no to racism and kick it out. It just makes sense. So... Simply put, the UK has still got some work to do. And by some, I mean a lot. Uh, you said earlier you were going to talk about the funding the police. You still haven't, and I'd very much like to know what you have to say about this, because, I mean, you're starting to run out of things to talk about here. You're coming very close to the end here. Not really sure you've got me convinced yet about anything, but... See what you can throw at me with defunding the police. I mean, it's a stupid idea. According to Bloomberg, since the late 1970s, the policing budget in the United States has trebled to around $115 billion in 2017, whilst consistently remaining at around 4% of the total federal budget. To put things into perspective, that's around $350 dedicated to every US citizen every year to police where roughly 0.7% of that total population has been incarcerated. Now, of course, the police do more than arrest and imprison people, but just thinking about that amount of money dedicated in the budget to around 3 million criminals, it's just a little bit ridiculous. And the fact that the police receive this much money, and yet there is a clear lack of training in various areas. For example... Vox reported back in 2016 that officers spend around 110 hours being trained how to use a firearm, with only 8 hours on combat management. The equivalent of 4 days means you are qualified to use a firearm, and only 8 to know what to do in a situation you may actually need a firearm. And just as a reminder, $115 billion. This money is clearly going somewhere, and... It's sure as hell not going into two very crucial areas of American police training, as you can see. We can also use these kinds of statistics to make assumptions regarding racial sensitivity training, where there is basically nothing invested into such an area. Logically, this explains why discrimination towards black men is rife in the US police force, and why this can result in police brutality. They just simply do not know how to handle the situations well enough because they have not been trained to do so. Of course, we can also accuse officers that commit such atrocities as lacking moral and common judgement, but we have to not hold only the individuals, but the whole system accountable. The system that allows such individuals to serve such a post. So the answers are clear. Either investing the money better within policing, or defunding it so that this money is decidedly spent better. The official Black Lives Matter website argues their case of advocating defunding the police. They state that despite increased police funding, police brutality has not improved, as evidenced. The money that is being funneled into policing would be better spent going towards housing, education and public health, with the claim that in some cities, that 5% less police funding would result in double the amount going to the public health budget. 
they describe a three-stage process as to how defunding the police would achieve their objectives. Number one, demand reparations to those affected by police violence. Number two, demand reduced spending on policing at local and state level. Number three, demand that leftover money be sent into black communities. Alongside this, they demand police no longer possess military weapons against civilians through gun control. The logic that they use with this is that firstly, the police should be held accountable by those victimised from the police. Secondly, the police are defunded so that we have more money that can go elsewhere. Thirdly, this leftover money will go into black communities that are typically less invested in than white communities, which can help bring people out of poverty, provide more safe spaces for people, and prevent crime from occurring as there is no longer the vacuum of crime to supplement the poor man's wallet. It is very important to note that they make no mention of abolishing the police. This is very important, as I talked about with the UK Black Lives Matter, that this is one of their ridiculous aims. People should understand and respect the role of being a police officer is an integral one. One where, yes, there are a large number of bad apples, but this is a screaming minority in most instances. The majority are hard-working individuals that do their duty to keep people safe and secure, and we must remember that. The Black Lives Matter movement recognises that policing is still important to society, but it is in desperate need to be reformed and fixed. On the other hand, with regards to police spending, I eliminated the possibility of increasing the amount of funding towards the US police. I feel I shouldn't need to describe why, but just to be a bit more balanced, if $115 billion has not reduced the cases of police brutality, clearly it's not how much is being spent, but how it's being spent within the police forces. Where is this money going to exactly? I'm no economics expert, but I thought with that amount of money, you'd very easily distribute that amount through the various sections of what needs funding within the police. And when you see how few hours go into important training, clearly this money is not being spent well, and by giving them more, it's just not going to these important areas of training, for instance. If you keep funding the amounts the same, then clearly what needs to happen is that the money is better invested. But then, how will this exactly be managed to ensure that the money stops being wasted? The obvious argument I expect to hear is if you defund the police, then the same proportions will be used as is, just with less money overall. I doubt this because as I previously stated, if you invest more in public spending that isn't policing, you can cut out crime from the roots before there is a need for such a police presence. And also, I believe that if policing does get defunded, then this will be a point where politicians have decided that police should be held accountable to a greater extent than is already the case. Plus, there may be the assumption as well that police forces may wonder about how much more will be taken out of their pockets in terms of money. So perhaps with this kind of incentive of not knowing how much police money you're going to end up with at the end, there may be a, an incentive to keep a hand on the purse strings and better spend. As such, I would expect that alongside such a radical change of spending would be legislation that would match the defunding. That is what makes sense to me, of course, and I'm intrigued to see what other people would argue. But of course, the sticking point here is, as I said in my earlier topic, is that Congress is probably not likely to pass any kind of significant legislation in the near future, not unless there is some kind of drastic change in direction of policy. Oh, can you... Hurry up and finish already. You've taken about an hour and a half already just talking absolute rubbish to me.
Can you just finish now? I mean, my god. Fine. Maybe you're right about all of this, but there's no way that Black Lives Matter is the rebirth of the civil rights movement. No way in hell, mister. That's... If, if there's one thing that I will say, is that you cannot compare the two at all. And finally, the question I sought to answer this whole episode, well, sort of question, links that I can draw between the civil rights movement and Black Lives Matter. There are definitely a couple of ways of approaching this, be it based on my research up to this point, I would conclude, or whether I would research this as a separate question entirely. In this instance, I'll do a bit of both. The New Yorker did an article back in 2016 which had a remotely similar question. The article described Black Lives Matter as not your grandfather's civil rights movement. The article then goes on to note that the big discrepancies occur when you look at the structure, no hierarchy or centralised leadership. And the fact that Black Lives Matter has been at odds with older civil rights leaders as well as the government at the time, being the Obama administration, as well as internal separation. The Guardian wrote in 2015 about it being the birth of a new civil rights movement, as opposed to a rebirth or continuation. In that article, they interviewed Gaza about the structure. Gaza talked about having lots of leaders, just not where you might be looking for them. If you're looking for the straight black man who is the preacher, you're not going to find it. Of course, one man that is synonymous with the civil rights movement is Martin Luther King, we look briefly as to how King made himself out to be the figurehead of the civil rights movement. He was president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and acted as one of several civil rights leaders behind organising things such as the Montgomery bus boycotts, protests in Birmingham and most famously the March on Washington, where he delivered his I Have a Dream speech. It was his message of non-violence and his public speaking skills that gave King his central position to the civil rights movement. After King was assassinated in 1968, the civil rights movement arguably fell apart very quickly, with riots as a result, as well as the fact that the notoriety of the civil rights movement fell from public perception very quickly. It can be argued that King's status as being the leader of the civil rights movement by many was as big of a strength to the movement as it was to be its downfall. He was highly influential and was held in such high esteem by all in the movement. The problem is, is that once he was assassinated, people believed that there was no longer a figure that could speak for them all, despite there being other leaders that have not gone down in history in quite the same way as King. This is something that perhaps Black Lives Matter should be capitalising on with their movement. No centralised leadership doesn't mean that people cannot be organised or participate to the same extent, as the summer of 2020 demonstrated. And without worrying about the fact that there is no de facto leader of the movement means that the movement cannot die in theory. The movement is reliant on the fact that the organisations are able to persist and keep trying to rally protesters. So long as the organisations exist locally, the movement will keep alive to an extent. As we have seen, Black Lives Matter pops up and then completely disappears off the radar for a year or so. Even then, these annual pop-ups rarely receive mass coverage in the United States, let alone worldwide. What needs to be seen is mass participation. We may not perhaps expect to see the same levels that we saw in 2020, but even half of that would be a clear enough message still that change is still demanded. The only weakness that I can see by the current lack of centralised leadership is the problem of differing messages within the different organisations, and the fact that all carry the same name of Black Lives Matter, then insert region. I believe that Black Lives Matter should be the name of the movement and that alone. 
the organizations need to maintain affiliation to the movement, but drop Black Lives Matter from their names. This ensures that if there are slight differences between the organizations, that goes on the name of the organization, not the movement, which may harm the movement. Another way I see they could evolve their structure is by having some sort of conference or congress of all these organizations coming together and endorsing a form of manifesto. Whilst I understand the importance and integrity of having separate organizations and aims, it would only strengthen the movement if there are more explicit aims that everyone agrees on and ways that protests should be conducted. Furthermore, if local organizations have identical aims, their organizations should merge together to form a larger structure that can also conduct united grassroots movements that can call for people across that chapter. Devolution of the movement is important to ensure that no single organization, nor body, nor individual holds all the power. But by giving more bones to the structure, the more secure the movement can be in moving forward, the more relevant and influential it can also be. Furthermore, similar to a political party, a democratic basis can be introduced to have a representative and democratic self-regulating organization that has a worldwide movement. I understand that the system is what Black Lives Matter is in essence trying to fight against, but if they perfect the system, it can exert far greater influence in achieving their aims and then maintaining equal rights in the future. Gaza was clearly aware of this general idea back in 2015, saying that the movement is powerful yet diffuse, and that the supporters are linked by the mobilizing force of social media, and not necessarily the ideas that each supporter may have about Black Lives Matter. Whilst I made scathing criticism of social media and the idea of slacktivism by many participants, I do have to recognize that, actually, social media is what is helping to keep the movement stay relevant and afloat. No social media, it would be reliant on the individuals keeping their interest in helping the movement, and the media feeding the flames constantly, even when nothing of note is occurring. It would be difficult to see the Black Lives Matter movement working as is if it were placed back in the 1950s-1960s America. The structure would just let it down if it were not to exist in the digital age. After all, 96% of African American internet users between the ages of 18 and 29 use a social network of some kind, which is 12% more than the white counterparts of the same group. Something that I also found interesting is that The Guardian also noted in their article that some younger activists fear the label of the new civil rights movement, as they thought it could undermine the present movement and also the fact that at the time of the article, it had not had the time to mature as a movement. It then went on to note that there are some members that resent activists of the past, such as Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, as they believe they represent a bygone era of well-known activists that actually just carried out the press conferences only after the hard work of protests had actually been done by the people. In Jackson's own words, some of them are respectful and some of them aren't, but you're not protected from racism by age or class. The fact is there is no hiding place. We've got to work together. Five years later, I believe we saw the first major signs of this. And given the cooperation between the NAACP and Black Lives Matter to plan protests of Chauvin's trial, clearly there is definitely still respect for organisations that were and are still instrumental to pursuing equal rights for black people. This very point from the article, however, leads me to a different conclusion, that this isn't a rebirth, nor is it a continuation or a birth of something new. This is an evolution. The similarities cannot be denied in terms of how both movements wish to act, it's just that Black Lives Matter is the civil rights movement in the digital age, minus the structural differences, 
which again signal evolution. Let's just recap some of my points and then make comparisons. Earlier I talked about how Black Lives Matter had been subject to being labelled as a Marxist organisation. Back in the 1960s, Martin Luther King had to defend himself of the label of being a communist, where King had to back the fact that Christianity and communism were incompatible. It's important to remember that being labelled communist at a point where the world nearly met its fate of nuclear war because of the Cold War is probably worse than being labelled a communist in the modern day. It was taken as a serious allegation and not one with a pinch of salt. Earlier I also talked about Black Lives Matter being labelled as terrorists and that they were considered violent. Yet again in the 1950s and 60s this was the exact same situation except taken seriously. J. Edgar Hoover, the first director of the FBI, had the civil rights movement as being a network of terrorists and specifically described Martin Luther King as being an enemy of the state. And then with the regards to violent, whilst the civil rights movement didn't quite acquire the label in the same way Black Lives Matter has because of the widely publicised non-violent protests, the movement was crucified by the media in the few instances that protests did become violent. It's important to note that the civil rights movement was widely met with violent retaliation, namely from ideological white Americans, the police, as well as hate groups such as the Ku Klux Klan. Earlier I also talked about participation of white people and suspicion towards white people. Black Lives Matter has not quite had the same attitude as those in the 1960s did, as I even quoted, However, there is still lingering resentment towards white people as to whether they are out there actually trying to help or whether they're there to cause trouble. I also talked about legislation. Of course, the big aim in the 1960s was more than just a civil rights act. I mean, even before that, there was the Voting Rights Act. There was a desire still that it needed to be supplemented by something more, even though many did see the Civil Rights Act as the watershed with race relations. The Breathe Act is what is being pursued and is clearly the main ambition, to see the legislative changes that will actually ensure that change has to happen. We're still yet to see this act, but should it emerge, I imagine it will be as held as significant in the modern era as the Civil Rights Act did in the 1960s. These were the main similarities I was able to draw from my list of extensive points about the Black Lives Matter movement. Where the Black Lives Matter movement goes from here is a path that is still not very obvious. The pandemic beginning to see the end of the tunnel, the president that prompted many to turn out and protest in 2020 gone, to radio silence ongoing since the end of 2020 entering 2021. There is just very little to seem to indicate what is going to be the next move. I suspect that, as I mentioned earlier, unfortunately, we won't hear much until another case of police brutality is widely publicised yet again. And whether we'd see the same response, I really am not sure. More people seem to be aware of the Black Lives Matter movement now than they did two or three years ago. But despite that, it still seems to not quite have the reputation to make such leading changes. But I hope I am wrong. Perhaps I should allow myself to think of that utopian society that Martin Luther King dreamed of. Perhaps Black Lives Matter eventually will succeed in his ideal reality. Yes, boys and girls both of colour and white can live together. But in harmony? That is still the goal. A goal that I truly hope will be realised. So you've made it to the end. Thank you for tuning in to this first episode of Civil Sites. I apologise that it ran for this long. Next episode will not be as long as this, for all of our sakes. Next episode will also actually be in the works for a little while, so please allow me some time. But 
feel free to give me suggestions for future episodes. I would also like to hear what you thought about the episode, thoughts about the podcast itself or the episode, or ask me something about I've talked about or tell me something that I've missed. Message me at Civil Sites on Instagram or Twitter. Thank you again. Civil Sites, signing off.